0: Thank you, Brian. I didn't realize you were that much taller than me. The passage today, we're still uh, going to finish up Matthew 5. So we're in Matthew 5, starting at verse 31, and we're going to go to 48. Matthew five thirty-one through 48. I had a very dear friend today ask me, being a man who's been through divorce myself, if if she wanted to read this for me, and I really appreciated it. That, Um, you know, if it wasn't for grace, I probably would. But it, I read the rest of the chapter and I haven't done so well with any of those either. So thank God for grace or I wouldn't read any of this book. So verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, Or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you. What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect.
1: We are lovers of loopholes. We love loopholes. A legal loophole is defined as an accidental technicality or unclear section of law that allows someone to avoid following a rule or fulfilling an obligation. I mean, we hear in the news all the time about loopholes in our tax code that allow individuals and corporations to pay less tax than they should. Or sometimes we hear about um, legal loopholes in criminal cases. He got off on a technicality, a loophole. Or on the more humorous side of things, sometimes we find we read about stories about people who get out of obeying a law that they think is onerous or ridiculous by finding a loophole. For example, the New York City Transit Authority put forward a rule that no animals may board subway trains or enter stations without being inside a container. Now, the intention of the law was that small pets should be kept in purses and larger ones inside those travel crates for animals. But the loophole is that they did not specify what kind of containers were valid containers. Hence, this picture is now a fairly common sight on New York City subways. The pet owner is carrying his animal in an Ikea bag, and that's technically a container, and the animals technically in the container, that's a loophole. It allows you to technically keep the law while you're actually breaking the law. And friends, we love loopholes. And in today's passage in the Sermon on the Mount, we hear Jesus closing loopholes in the law, which people were exploiting. People were exploiting loopholes to say, well, I'm technically obeying the law, but their hearts were still breaking the law. And so in today's passage, we hear Jesus continue to close loopholes. Uh, again, in Matthew chapter five, as we started looking at last week, we find there's a total of six antithi- 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 antitheses. Antitheses, they all they all start the same. You have heard that it was said, but I say. You have heard that it was said, but I say. You have heard I was said, but I say. And the issue that Jesus is taking here in Matthew chapter 5 is not with what is written. His issue is not with the law of God. His issue is not with the Torah or any other part of the Hebrew Scriptures. His issue is not with what is written. It's with what is said. Because the scribes and the Pharisees were taking and interpreting and applying the law in ways That allowed them to exploit loopholes. So as we noted last week, all six of these are, you have heard it said, Jesus is not taking issue with the law, but with the interpretations and applications of the law. Because as we heard last week, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. To rightly interpret the law and to correctly and completely reveal to you the character of God that is revealed to you in the law. But Jesus knows us because he created us. And he knows that we're a bunch of loophole lovers. And so in today's section, Jesus is closing those loopholes that allow us to technically obey when we're actually disobeying. Because, friends, our technical obedience is really just true disobedience. And that's the point that Jesus is making. Jesus begins this section addressing divorce. Oh, good. An easy topic to start with. Now, friends, when I address the issue of divorce, when I talk about it, there are one of two ways that I talk about the issue. I might be talking about it pastorally, or I might be talking about it philosophically. Now, that's There's no difference of authority. The authority is the same. The approach will be different. Friends, in both cases, God is our ultimate and final authority. Scripture is our authority. However, my approach will be different when somebody comes to me struggling with an issue versus when I'm here talking about it philosophically or didactically like I am this morning. Today, I'm discussing this issue didactically, in a sense, at arm's length. I'm not seeking to apply this passage today, right here and now, pastorally to your personal situation. If you would like to talk about your personal situation in light of the Scriptures, I would love to sit down with you and to talk pastorally about how to apply the authority of the Scriptures to your life. But I am right now not handling this pastorally, but philosophically or didactically. We are teaching about what Jesus says right here about divorce. And also this morning, I just want to note that I am not about to try to address everything the Bible teaches about marriage and divorce. Now, when we come to Matthew chapter 19, we're going to have another opportunity to discuss Jesus teaching on marriage and divorce, and at that time I will likely go deeper and further into the full biblical teaching on this issue. But for today, my intention in handling this subject is only to talk about what Jesus is talking about right here in these two verses. Matthew chapter 5 verses 31 and 32. What does Jesus teach us here about marriage? And divorce and remarriage. And to the end of that, I want to begin by noting that verse 31 does begin slightly differently than the other antitheses in this section. Now, I noted that there's six antitheses that begin. You have heard it was said. However, if you look closely at 31, you'll notice it's slightly different. It simply says it was also said. It's almost an abbreviated version of the others. Well, why is it abbreviated? I believe it's abbreviated because what Jesus is teaching here about divorce and remarriage is meant to connect to what He was just teaching about. And if you remember from last week, what did He just finish teaching about? Lust and adultery. And so then He follows it up with this teaching about divorce and remarriage. Because He's trying to close a loophole By which some were legalizing their lust and solemnizing their adultery. Now, Deuteronomy 24 is the only place in the Torah, in the Old Testament law, that we get direct teaching about divorce. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 says When a man takes a wife and marries her, if he then finds no favor, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he's found some indecency in her, And He writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from His house and she departs out of His house and then gives some other instructions. But these are the important ones I want us to consider because Jesus' words in verse 31 of Matthew 5 are very intentional because He's using the language of right here, Deuteronomy 24, giving a certificate of divorce. Giving a certificate of divorce. That's what the Old Testament taught. That's what Jesus is talking about here. However, the problem is the circumstances around which it was permissible to give such a certificate. As we just read in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, it says, He finds some indecency in her. So what does something indecent mean? And you see, just like the lack of clarity about exactly what type of container could be used for the animals on the New York City subway, the lack of clarity on something indecent is grounds for giving her a certificate of divorce had opened up all kinds of loopholes through which people were jumping. And in fact, in Jesus' day, two prominent schools of teaching had risen up to consider what is that something indecent that Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 is referring to. And the first school was the school of Rabbi Shammai, who said, is it on the screen? Here we go. I just want to make sure I didn't disappear. Here we go. A man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her. For it's written, because he's found in her indecency in anything. So according to Rabbi Shammai, unless the wife has been sexually unfaithful, The husband does not have grounds to divorce her. And Jesus seems to affirm this understanding in verse 32. Jesus says, but I say to you, anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, friends, this, this word here, sexual immorality, translates the Greek word porneia from which we get our word pornography. And when first century Jews to whom Jesus was speaking heard this word porneia, it would have called to mind Leviticus 18, which was the normative list of prohibited sexual practices in Jesus' day. And the list included adultery, sex before marriage, incest, bestiality, and all types of homosexual behavior. Cornea was the catch-all term for any type of sexual activity outside of the boundaries of one man and one woman in the lifelong covenant of marriage. And friends, this has not changed. No matter how the culture changes, this has not and will not change. Because friends, Jesus didn't come to make things easier. I mean, don't, don't you remember last week we heard Jesus say that if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery with her? Jesus didn't come to abolish or to relax the law. Jesus declared that porneia includes not just your body, friends, but your mind and your heart. And Jesus agrees that pornea, sexual immorality, makes divorce permissible. Now, Jesus' stance wouldn't have been shocking because adultery as grounds for divorce was almost universally accepted by the Judaism of Jesus' day. Because, friends, people understood what sexual intimacy is. People understood what sexual intimacy is. Sexual intimacy is a ratification, the solemnization of the marriage covenant. As we've discussed before, a covenant is an agreement, a relationship between two people. And the covenants are enacted with two parts. There's first, oaths, vows, or promises. And second, you sign on the dotted line. You seal the covenant. Oaths and a seal. And that's what happens in marriage. The first part is the covenant. You come before God and witnesses. You take oaths. You make vows. These public promises are made before God and before a congregation of people. The second part of making the marriage covenant is to sign on the dotted line. It's the ratification, the solemnization of the sealing of the covenant. And that's what happens after the oaths in the act of sexual intimacy. Friends, this is why. This is why at the end of every marriage I've ever done and every marriage you've ever seen me do, I declare... Those whom God has joined together, let no one separate. Before God and in the presence of this congregation, this man and this woman have made their solemn vows to each other. They've confirmed their promises by the joining of hands and the giving and receiving of rings. Therefore, I proclaim them husband and wife. And then I say, come on. Yes, you may kiss. The bride. And why do I say that? Friends, the reason why I only say kiss the bride is because you don't want to see the whole thing. The kiss is a preview or a promise of coming attractions. The marriage covenant, where you take the oath, followed by the oath ratifying ceremony. Now, we don't have to be there for the whole oath ratifying ceremony. Although interestingly, in times and cultures past, it was actually the job of the best man to be in the room for the oath ratifying ceremony after the promises were made. And aren't you glad some traditions have gone by the wayside? So marriage has an oath and it has an oath ratifying ceremony, which is sexual intimacy. So Jesus agrees with Rabbi Shammai and the culture of Judaism in that day that sexual intimacy outside of the covenant oath of marriage is to sign on the dotted line with the wrong person. And when you do that, you might just invalidate your original oath. Church, sexuality. Sexuality is more than mere physical activity. Sexuality is a ratification, an affirmation, an embodiment of the marriage covenant. And when you do it with someone with whom you are not married, you are potentially rendering null and void your original oath. So Jesus agrees here that adultery does not make divorce necessary, but it does make it permissible. It does not make divorce necessary, but it does make it permissible. Now, friends, Jesus is teaching in the midst of a culture like ours that was actually far more permissive than that. You see, because there were far more loopholes in Jesus' day that people were jumping through, just like people today are jumping. Jumping through loopholes. Because while just about everyone would have agreed with Rabbi Shammai and this interpretation and this understanding, many in Jesus' day, just as in our day, went even further than that interpretation. In fact, followed the interpretation of another rabbi, Rabbi Hillel. Now, Rabbi Hillel said, a man may divorce his wife even if she spoiled a dish for him. For it is written, because he is found in her indecency in anything. So the school that Rabbi Hillel popularized came to be known as the any cause for divorce. Arguing that anything at all indecent, even burning the toast, would be cause for divorce and for issuing a certificate of divorce. And this more liberal, large loophole was unsurprisingly very popular with the Jews of Jesus' day. And Jesus knows that many people are using this loophole, they're using this interpretation to legalize their lust and to solemnize their adultery. Because, friends, now if you lust after a woman who is not your wife, rather than committing adultery, all you have to do is write a legal certificate of divorce to your current wife Then you can go legally marry the woman after which you're lusting. And you can legalize your lust and then solemnize your adultery. It's a pretty big loophole. And Jesus closes the loophole at the end of verse 32 saying, You do that and you're making her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus says, You're not fooling God. God knows your heart. And in this passage, Jesus closes the loophole. He says, you cannot legalize your lust or solemnize adultery. And he closes that loophole. And related to this idea of loopholes and loopholes in what we promise, he moves on in 33 to 34 to oaths. He says, those who are willing to play fast and loose, with your marriage oaths, are probably willing to exploit loopholes in other lesser oaths. Isn't that true? The Pharisees of Jesus' day had shifted from the function of oaths to the formula of oaths. They were trying to open up a loophole in all things by shifting the importance of keeping your word and your oaths to the phrasing of your words. They were saying that if you didn't use the right formula, a vow would be invalid and couldn't be enforced. They were masters, like we are, of finding those technicalities in the legal contracts so that we can avoid having to abide by that contract. Friends, we create elaborate ways of backing out of what we said we would do. Well, I might have said it, but I didn't promise it. Well, I might have said it, but I I didn't really mean it. Well, that's not exactly what I meant when I said that. What I really meant was this. And friends, such pleadings are almost always about us avoiding commitments, breaking promises, and hiding our disobedient hearts. So Jesus here, again, closing loopholes, He says, irrespective of the formula you use, your words should be binding. Theologian John Stott says it well. He says, our oath-taking is really a pathetic confession of our own dishonesty. Jesus says, how about you just let your words be honest and true? Rather than taking oaths at all. Church, our words should be our bond. Our promises should be trusted without any formula or formalities. Or, in the words of Horton the elephant, I meant what I said and I said what I meant. An elephant's faithful 100%. An elephant's faithful, but are we? Jesus says, say what you mean. Mean what you say. You don't need oaths. You need truth, true hearts, and true words. And so he concludes in verse 37 let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. He's closing these loopholes that we want to jump through. And he says, nope. Pay attention. And I wish he would stop here, but he doesn't. He's not done addressing our loophole loving hearts. And he goes on to the very heart of the matter. And friends, the heart of the matter is a matter of our hearts. We're always looking for loopholes to excuse our unloving hearts. Jesus begins in verse 38 by quoting from the Torah. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We find this multiple places. Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. Friends, God is a God of shalom. And shalom is a Hebrew word meaning, among other meanings, peace and balance. Balance. God's a God of justice, of restoring balance, shalom, when it's been disrupted. So justice means the punishment should fit the crime. In Latin, this is lex talionis, the law of retaliation. A just and equal price should be paid for an offense balance. And, friends, this was an important law because in the ancient Near East, where this was first spoken, this type of balance was not at all common. Instead, if you hurt me, I will hurt you more. That was the law of the land. That was the way that they lived. And, friends, doesn't that same attitude of escalation still continue today in our world, in our hearts, in our relationships? You hurt me, I'll hurt you more. So this Old Testament law, lex talionis, was not about being harsh. It was about being just. It meant to curb revenge and to promote balance Neither should too little be taken, but nor should too much. Two eyes should not be taken for one eye. Justice seeks balance or harmony. Shalom. However, our hearts are always looking for loopholes that allow us to give worse than we received. Our hearts are tuned not to justice, but to revenge. And Jesus says, so if you're really concerned about becoming perfect as God is perfect, then instead of being concerned with just how much evil you can return, how about you return good instead? Instead of measuring evil, how about you return good? Now, friends, understand this teaching. This teaching here is not meant to prohibit government or police, or soldiers from combating and restraining evil. Romans 13, as well as plenty of other places in Scripture, teach us that's actually the right role of government. God has given us government to restrain and to punish evil, often by force. Here, what Jesus is teaching about is our own personal desires for revenge. Revenge. Also, I want you to understand, Jesus' words should not be understood to prohibit self-defense or fleeing from a serious assault or an abusive relationship. Friends, Jesus' words here are not about suffering because your partner or the other person is angry and emotionally unstable. The context strongly suggests Jesus is continuing to teach his followers that about suffering because of their association with him and with the gospel. His point here is about personal retaliation. Because, friends, you can choose not to personally retaliate at the same time that you're calling the police on an abuser. The thief that you caught trying to steal your wallet, you could buy him something to eat while you wait for the police to arrive and arrest him. Jesus' point is that you can choose to show love. Jesus' point is that rather than looking for loopholes that allow you to show evil, you can choose love. So, so turn the other cheek is not an absolute command for every situation, but a vivid illustration of what it means to endure unavoidable, unprovoked, unjust suffering, especially for the name of Jesus Christ. And the four examples Jesus offers to illustrate this in 39 through 42. He discusses your body, your clothing, your service, and your money. And in the four parallel statements, he calls his followers not to seek the justice they deserve, but to extend mercy and love that their persecutors don't deserve. Don't give them what they deserve. Give them what they don't deserve. Give them love. In one of his most famous sermons titled, Loving Your Enemies, Martin Luther King Jr. preached, Returning hate for hate multiplies hate. Adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Jesus says, don't give them back what they deserve. Don't return the evil and the hate you've been given. Choose love. And friends, isn't that what Jesus Himself did for us? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 makes clear, when Jesus was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. So Jesus warns, stop looking for loopholes that allow you to measure and to mete out evil. Return love, and in doing so, entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. And finally, Jesus closes a loophole that the Pharisees and the scribes had flat out written for themselves. The very last statement, verse 43, You have heard it that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Friends, that's found nowhere in the Torah. That is found nowhere in the Old Testament. The scribes and Pharisees had written for themselves a giant loophole to love. Just like the exact animal containers on the subway, the Pharisees and scribes argued, well, yeah, the Torah says we should love, but it doesn't say exactly who we need to love. And so they wrote for themselves a loophole so that they could avoid loving. They created a loophole to love. Of course you need to love. However, you really only need to love those who love you. And friends, that's not love. That's enlightened self-interest. That's enlightened self-interest. I do unto others so that they will do unto me. Enlightened self-interest. I act in loving ways towards my friends because they will act in loving ways towards me. I invite them to the party so that they will invite me to their party. I give them gifts so that they will give me gifts. Enlightened self-interest. And Jesus' point in verses 46 and 47 is that if you only love those who love you, that's not really love. If you only love those who love you, that's not really love. That's enlightened self-interest. And that is what everyone does. Whether you love God or not, that is what every one of us does. And Jesus teaches his followers, so don't love the way the world loves in a measured, self-serving way. Jesus says, you're my followers. You're not called to look for loopholes. You're called to lavishly love. And in verses 44 and 45 says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Friends, God's love is not just enlightened self-interest. His love has no loopholes. He does not only love those who first loved Him. He gives the sun and the rain and common grace to both the just and the unjust alike. And Jesus' statement about loving is so that you be sons of your Father. He's not saying, well, if you do these things, you'll become a son of the Father. He's saying by loving, you demonstrate that you are a child of God. Jesus says, those who follow Me are going to resemble, they're going to bear a family resemblance. They're going to look like their father. And their father loves indiscriminately. He pours out the rain On the just and the unjust alike. It's not enlightened self-interest. He loves His enemies. And you, if you follow Him, will resemble Him and do the same. Friends, Jesus in today's passage he's closing all these loopholes because His ultimate desire is that His followers become like the Father in Heaven. That we come to resemble our Father. Then we come to resemble Christ. In the final statement Jesus makes in this chapter, verse 48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Friends, God is perfect. There are no loopholes in God. There are no loopholes in His love. And our conformity to Him should have no loopholes either. That's why Jesus taught in verse 19, Whoever relaxes one of the least of the commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets because these commandments reveal to us perfectly God the Father. They reveal the character of God the Father. We can't relax or look for loopholes to the commandments. We want to become perfect, loophole less like our perfect Father. But as we said last week, friends, our problem, our problem is that we can't. Why did the scribes and Pharisees look for loopholes? Because friends, the truth is none of us can do it. We can't keep the law. None of us is perfect like the Father's perfect. So as we concluded last week, the Sermon on the Mount is not so much meant to tell us what we must do, as much to tell us that we cannot do it. And it points us to the Gospel. It points us to the good news that what we cannot do, Christ has come and done for us. Christ fulfilled, perfectly keeping the law for us. As we sang this morning, Come behold the wondrous mystery, He the perfect Son of Man. In His living, in His suffering, never trace or stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ the great and sure fulfillment of the law. In Him we stand. Friends, Christ is perfect like the Father is perfect. He's the perfect Son of Man. No trace of sin or disobedience or or failing in Him. He jumped through no loopholes. He went to the cross. Christ is the great and the sure fulfillment of the law. And in Christ we now stand. We put our hope in not what we have done or can do, but what Christ has done for us. And then we submit to His Spirit that He's given within us To make us more like Him so that we become more and more perfect as the Father is perfect. But friends, we can't do that on our own. Rather, as we also sang this morning, Lord, I would be Yours alone and lived so all might see. The strength to follow Your commands could never come from me. Friends, if we're going to become like God the Father, if we're going to become like Christ the Son, if we're going to close those loopholes and live in conformity to the perfect revealed character of God, the strength to do so cannot and will not come from you. It comes from the Spirit of Christ in us. And friends, what we need is exactly what this table remembers. What we need is what this table remembers. We need Christ. This teaching reveals our need, and it points us to the solution. Jesus, who is perfectly faithful where we are not. Jesus, who's perfectly kept every oath, every promise. It has not and will not fail. Jesus, who returns love for evil. Jesus, who loves his enemies and gives himself for those who persecute him. This table remembers what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5.8. God shows His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, the very enemies of God, Christ died for us. Friends, what the scribes and Pharisees tried to make easier by growing and exploiting loopholes, Christ made impossible by coming and closing all the loopholes. And then Christ did the impossible by perfectly fulfilling it all. Perfectly obeying, perfectly loving, and perfectly saving all who would come to Him in faith. Friends, if you never have, what stops you from coming in faith today and receiving the forgiveness and the new life that Jesus Christ offers? And church, as we come to the table today, what loopholes which you're exploiting, which you're jumping through, do you need to confess And from which do you need to repent? How do you need to ask for the Spirit of God within you to transform you? So that you might evermore become like the Father who's called you and who loves you. Like Jesus who has come to save you. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to the table now, we pray that you would do your work. Do Your work in us. Do Your work through us. Make us more like You. May we evermore reflect the perfection and the glory and the beauty of You. May the world see not us, but see Christ in us. We give ourselves in the name of Jesus. Amen. If the elders would come forward for the serving of communion.